0: Luke chapter 19, verse 28. I should tell you that just before um, this passage, Jesus has told a parable about a, a king who gave some money to his servants and then went on a journey, and the master returned. The king returned and called those servants to give an account of how well they'd used what he had entrusted to them. So it's a king who goes away and then returns. And then in this next uh, passage, we have the king coming to his city. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead. It's important when you're reading Luke's gospel to notice that there are little journey markers. Whenever Luke puts in a little journey marker, it's an indication that he's about to introduce a new subject after Jesus said this he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives he sent two of his disciples saying to them go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you Why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I want you to keep reading. I hope you don't mind. I want you to just keep reading a little bit. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. I spent £30 this last week at a Christian bookshop in Tolworth on a brand new Bible, which had the New International Version down one column and the uh, Peterson's The Message down the other column. I was looking forward to bringing it and using it for the first time this morning. I was reading some of it and discovered that most of Job and most of uh, 1 Chronicles is is not there. So I have to take it back. (laughs) But um, that has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to say except that we're preaching from the whole Bible this morning. You know, just when you thought that you were going to get one kind of Brexit, and up popped another, and a very different one. You thought you were going to get a conservative government with a large majority, but up popped another government with a very small majority, propped up by a small party of Irish politicians. Then they couldn't get the job done because the House of Commons took control and every man voted what was right in his own eyes. And it's been somewhat bewildering and confusing, Brexit. My wife and I have um, come to a firm conclusion together that the best thing to do is to switch off the television and eat something (laughs) when Brexit comes on the TV. So we're now 15 stone heavier than we were about a year ago. In Luke chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ um, speaking with, on a mountain with two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, and his disciples nearby, three of them asleep, three of the disciples, but they were awake long enough to hear that Moses and Elijah would come to speak with the Lord Jesus about something similar to Brexit. It's called the Exodus. They came to speak with him about the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And uh, it was a rather interesting thing. He was going to accomplish something in Jerusalem that's called an exodus. He was going to lead, like Moses, he was going to lead his people out of bondage into a new kind of life and into a new kind of inheritance. Uh, It's been a long journey for these disciples Um, it it began really with a series of amazing events in which angels and shepherds and more angels and human beings declared that the baby born in Bethlehem was the promised king. Uh, The the one that the Old Testament looked forward to, the son of David, the king of kings, he's come at last, he's come to lead as Moses led his people out of Egypt and from the dominion of Pharaoh and all the armies of Pharaoh died in the in the waters of the Red Sea, so this king is going to deliver his people from the Romans, lead them out and defeat the enemies of the kingdom. And the king began to do amazing things. Astonishing miracles flowed from his ministry, incredible sermons flowed from his lips, obviously uh, filled with divine wisdom. He called 12 apostles to be with him and it was like an echo of the 12 tribes of Israel. Here is the king who is gathering the 12 tribes around himself. He talked about himself in terms that indicated that he claimed to be the promised Messiah king. In chapter 9, he began this journey from, um, from the Mount of Transfiguration. He began this journey to Jerusalem and that's why Luke keeps popping in these journey markers. Because the journey starts in chapter 9 and it ends in chapter 23, 24. So these little journey markers. And it seemed to his followers that this was the big journey. Jerusalem was the city of David. And Jesus was the son of David. And David reigned in Jerusalem and conquered all his enemies and gave the people of God rest on every side. Surely the new king, the greater king, was going to do the same. So they're very excited. And uh, it's been a long campaign. The issues have been publicly discussed. And now in chapter 19 and verse 28, he's finally approaching the city. It's all going to happen this week, boys. You can imagine those three disciples coming down from the mountain of Transfiguration. Be, what's it mean? What's happened? We saw Moses and Elijah. What did they talk about? They talked about something he's going to do in Jerusalem. They called it his exodus. So well, here they are all these chapters later and it's going to happen this week. The king has come. He's riding into the city. Verse 28, after Jesus said this, he went, ahead, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And interestingly, in verse 29, he approached Bethphagia and Bethany and he comes down the Mount of Olives and he's actually... He's doing in reverse a journey that King David had done on one occasion. King David had had to flee the city in tears and in disgrace because his son had rebelled against him and he he went up the Mount of Olives and he was weeping as he went. Now Jesus reversed that. It's as if the son of King David is coming back finally in the glory. So he's arrived at the very doorstep of the city of God and we're told in verse 37 that he was accompanied by a whole crowd of disciples, a whole multitude. And they're all very excited, but amazingly this week is going to turn out very differently from the way they thought it would. They were expecting one kind of Brexit and they got something entirely different. It wasn't Article fifty of the with the European Union. It was something incredibly amazing that they could not have envisaged. By the end of the week these disciples were going to be thoroughly confused and in Luke chapter 24 as two of them left Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus they they went with their hearts broken the vision was finished the hopes were dashed the the imagination was destroyed everything that they'd hoped for was cataclysmically broken we're going to think about that this morning before we take bread and wine in remembrance of the king the first thing is, I want to talk about the man who behaves like a king. The man who behaves like a king. During um, this next week, uh, it, after this triumphal entry, the Lord Jesus is going to be threatened. He's going to be arrested in the middle of the night. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be denied by Peter. He's going to be abandoned by all his friends. He's going to be illegally tr- accused and tried in the middle of the night. He's going to be wrongfully convicted. He's going to be brutally abused. He's shamefully stripped. He's going to be publicly crucified. He's going to be mocked and scorned and spat upon and hung out to die. And then his body is going to be laid in a, a borrowed tomb. Was never a body looked like it. It was scarred to the bone with lashes from whips and blows from fists, multiple soldiers beating him in the face. That's how the week's going to end. It's going to look like a tragedy. It's going to appear that the dream has ended, plans overturned and the hopes smashed. That's how the week's going to end. It's going to look like Jesus just lost control and that he turned out to be just like every other wannabe prime minister or leader of an army, he just couldn't get it all together, it's going to appear that he checked out as the leader of his party and left the stage to every, everybody else to a rabble that didn't know what to do next a story that we've heard in our own country isn't it recently the leader checking out well Jesus begins apparently to make arrangements or his coronation he's He's behaving like a king here. Uh, he's behaving as though he can conscript any animal he wishes for the ceremonies of state. When he got close to the Mount of Olives, he sent his disciples ahead of him and he says in verse 30, Go to the village, as you went, you find an unbroken colt, untie it, bring it here. If the owner asks you what, what you'd think you're doing, tell him, Oh, the king has need of him. He behaves as if. He can conscript any old donker he wants. He's the king. I, this is why when I discovered my Bible was, um, was, was incomplete. I was looking for 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, please turn to that if, you, if you've got a Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 14. Israel asks for a king. And uh, the, the prophet Samuel tells them what, what kings do. And he says in verse 14, The king will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and the vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your manservants and maidservants, and the rest of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. That's what kings do. I think I'll, uh, we'll conscript a few donkeys. So that's, that's a, if you were a Jewish person who knew their Bible inside out, when Jesus, when Jesus behaved like this, saying, I think, I'll have that donkey. There's a donkey over there. I can't see it yet, but I know where it is. It's unbroken. And, and just go and get it. And if they ask you what you're doing, say, the king wants him. He's behaving like a king. That's the implication. So he re- requisitions this man's donkey. And then the Lord deliberately reenacts the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's a, um, a powerful um, little chapter which describes the, the promise that one day a great king would come from God and uh, he would be able to do great things. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See the echo there of, of Luke chapter 19. The people are shouting uh, as the king comes to Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And So the Lord Jesus is deliberately reenacting that prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, and he's basically saying, I am the king that was promised by God through the, the teachings of Zechariah. And in that chapter, it's a glorious chapter, because it's full of the glory of the future kingdom. The pagan nations are going to be subdued and converted and enjoy the peace of God. God's king is going to come and establish a great throne in Jerusalem, and his reign is going to inaugurate a golden age of spiritual and international blessing. And how will you identify this king? Well, he'll come with people shouting his name, and he'll be riding on an unbroken colt of a donkey. And it says in Zechariah 9, he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, man, these disciples who would know Zechariah prophecy backwards in Hebrew. They were there and they saw this king requisitioning this donkey, getting on it and riding into Jerusalem. They knew exactly what was going to happen. He was going to establish his reign from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That was at the beginning of the week. So the man who was born in a stable and was laid in an animal feeding trough for rise in Jerusalem just like the king promised in Zechariah. And he's basically saying, I'm the one. I'm the one you were waiting for. And so they shout out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Pharisees understand what's going on. The Jewish leaders they say, tell your disciples to stop mouthing this blasphemy. Jesus replied, if they stop, the very stones will cry out. So the week begins with extraordinary kingly behaviour as the king enters the city. And his followers shout words from Psalm 118. Blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Can you imagine the scene? it's more like a football chant you know get out don't think they were nice like little choir boys singing peace and no this is this is like a football crowd chanting the name of the greatest team in the world um uh, shouting in the street blessed is the king you know that's what's going on here and uh, but strangely as they chant these words from Psalm 118 they're actually Not far off predicting what was going to happen at the end of the week, because in Psalm 118, it says that the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. By the end of the week, this king is going to be the stone that the builders rejected. And there's nothing more important, my friends, than that we understand this. This man is the promised king, promised from ages past, sent into the world by his Father God. He's come to establish his kingdom. But he's going to do it through rejection and death. Before he becomes the chief cornerstone in the new thing that God is building, he's got to be rejected and despised and to die for the sins of the world. When you really understand that, you can begin to truly praise God for the king that he sent it's a terrible thing. This is what's lurking in the background of this passage. It's a terrible thing when people have less spiritual instinct than the stones in the road. If you stop my disciples speaking my praise, the stones in the road will speak instead. If you don't understand who I am, if you don't have hearts and tongues at glory in my kingship, the stones will cry out instead of you. You know, one of the telltale signs that you really have been gripped at heart level by the beauty of King Jesus is that there are times when you can't stop yourself praising God for his beauty and his perfections with a loud voice. And we are in a position, this side of the death of Jesus and the resurrection and the ascension into heaven and the whole history of the Christian church we are in a much better position to praise him for his kingship than any other people on earth. So what's your heart like? Do you have a heart to instinctively praise the king and love him? He's the man who behaves like a king. And secondly, he's the man who behaves like a prophet. Verse 41 Jesus draws near the city and it comes into view. He he crests the, the ridge of Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives. And he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city. Verse 41. And he begins to speak like a prophet. He has prophetic insight into Jerusalem's destiny and it rips his heart open. He sees Roman legions surrounding the city. The days will come when when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He sees Roman legions, hard-bitten Roman soldiers Italians and soldiers from all parts of the Roman Empire building siege ramps against Jerusalem. General, General Titus came in AD 70 and he allowed thousands upon thousands of pilgrims into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And then once they were in, he shut the doors and he wouldn't let anybody come in or go out. And those inside the city began to starve to death. Josephus, historian, Jewish historian Josephus reckoned that more than a million Jews died within the walls of a city not much bigger than the center of Kingston. Died of starvation. And then eventually, when the Romans broke through the walls, they burned everything, they killed everyone. The prophet Jesus saw it happening in Luke chapter 19 and it broke his heart. He sobbed in the street. He wept over it, it says here. The Greek word is sobbed. He sobbed in the street. He, he spoke like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets who foretold the destruction of Jerusalem 500 or more years before the, the death of Jesus. You Remember those prophets had said, uh, because of your idolatry, uh, the forces of paganism are going to sweep down from the north. They always come from the north, the pagans, don't they? Uh, the forces of paganism are going to come down from the north and they're going to destroy this city and not one stone of the temple will be left upon another because you've rejected God and you've preferred idols to the true God. So in the 6th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar came and fulfilled the prophecies. It was all about to happen once again. And the prophet Jesus looks at the city and he says, oh, it's tragedy. The Romans are going to come, they're going to destroy the city and kill its people. Because you would not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you remember what happened in this? the week following this thing? The, the, The people were going to gather together and to say, we will not have this man rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. That's what they said. We have no king but Caesar. They rejected King Jesus and they chose submission to the Roman emperor. It is a terrible thing to think that you know more than God It's a terrible thing to think that rejecting God's Son and His rule over your life is a lifestyle choice. As King Jesus looked at this city which was about to reject His claims, He saw beyond their decision to say no to Him, to the judgment of God. He wasn't glad. He didn't take any pleasure in it. God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He sobbed in the street. And the stones that would have spoken of his saving power would one day speak of the destroying power of God. It's said by some of the historians that the the Romans never intended to destroy the, the temple in Jerusalem. It had been 40 odd years in the building by the time of Jesus' life. Uh, and his ministry 40 odd years to build this temple It was going to take another 30 years to finish it 20 odd years to finish it it was one of the marvels of the ancient world the city of jerusalem clothed in gold and when it said that when the morning sun sh- shone upon it it shone like a jewel in the midst of the land it was a beautiful temple it was said that uh, general titus never intended to destroy that temple that he wanted to make it into a place of pagan worship But um, it's said that the fires started by accident and destroyed this temple. A terrible thing to reject God's son and to say away with him, I don't want him. Let something else rule my life. I already have a king, thank you very much. I don't want King Jesus. Some of us here might be practicing atheists not in the theological, philosophical sense, but we might just be living lives in which we don't bow to the rule of King Jesus. We have something else that rules over us. I already have a king. Thanks. I, I don't need that king. The man who behaved like a prophet. The man who behaved like a king. The man who behaved like a prophet. And I finished with this: the man who behaved like a priest. So eventually on this day of riding into the city on the colt of a donkey, he entered this brilliant temple of Herod. This, um, this wonder of the ancient world that was finished shortly before General Titus invaded Rome, it invaded Jerusalem. And it was burnt down. When Jesus comes to the temple, he begins to behave like, like the high priest. He, he starts turning over. The table of the money changers He starts behaving as if he has the perfect right to purge the temple of anything in it that is contrary to the mind of God, of evil and corruption. See, it was the responsibility of the priests. Most of us think about the priests in the Old Testament. We think that they were nice guys who who took animals and and kind of slaughtered them and took the blood and did various things. Actually, the priests were also guards. They were bouncers. They... They kept the gates of the temple and you weren't allowed in if you were ceremonially unclean and they did investigations of people coming into the temple. It was their job to make ensure that God's temple was clean inside and that no unclean thing was to enter. So if you were a pagan and you you weren't a Jew, you tried to get into the temple, you'd be kept out by these guards, these priests. That was their job. Well, here's a place where God would be honoured by his people. The temple was meant to be a place where God would be honoured because his people would make it a house of prayer. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 to 8. Jesus quotes from that, um, from that passage. It is written, he said to them in verse 45, my house will be a house of prayer. It's from Isaiah chapter 56. But you've made it a den of robbers when the Lord Jesus entered the temple he was appalled to see that commercialism had replaced worship that man-centeredness had replaced God-centeredness the temple had become a place of greed for men rather than the place of the glory of God how easily it happens bit by bit the church becomes a place where the pride of man takes precedence over the honour of Christ. Pastors become dictators. Church officers become spiritual bureaucrats rather than shepherds. House of God becomes a place where it's the exaltation of man's gifts rather than the glory of God. Not many years ago, the leader of one of the biggest evangelical denominations in the American South defrauded his denomination of millions of dollars. He spent large sums housing his mistress in a waterside apartment while maintaining a spiritual facade. He was cheating on his wife. He was cheating on the church. He was doing it for sex and for money and for power. And he turned the gospel into a thing of commerce. He ended up in jail. Mega church pastor ends up in jail there's another one recently A Harvest Bible Church in America went from a few handful of people meeting to 10,000 worshippers spread over a number of campuses a pastor was almost treated like a god he began to abuse people verbally became a spiritual bully he then spent $2 million building a manse for himself chance would be a fine thing wouldn't it $2 million the the house that he built had 10 garages he got the sack recently (coughs) quite right too he got the sack and some of these guys we'll have to stand before a greater tribunal than the eldership my greatest problem as a as a pastor in days gone by when i was a, a working pastor my greatest danger was hubris pride the danger to make the church a place where i can satisfy my my desire for significance where i can get recognition for what I do from people who care for me and respect me. I, I, I could do this for my own self-satisfaction. When the king came to his city, he came to give away his life for the salvation of the world. He came to give himself away. When he came to the temple, he found men doing stuff for themselves. They were ripping off the people of God to get something for themselves, a personal profit. They were robbing the sheep, not serving them. It is a complete catastrophe. And it's so possible for any of us to make God's house into a place where we get stuff for ourselves. The house of God, the... The people of God is not a place or an organisation where you get stuff mainly for yourself, for personal fulfilment, what your desires crave. It's a place where you give yourself away, sacrificially, for other people, that they might get stuff. In every church I've ever served, there have been people who think that the main purpose of the church is to get stuff for themselves to be loved to be looked after to be respected they might talk a good game but when the chips are down and the reality is exposed they reveal that they want the church to serve them that's what they think is the main purpose of the church it's there to serve me don't give much of that to others but they demand that others do it for them that's a tragedy they set up their tables in the courts of the church and they say I want to profit from you guys and then if they're not if you don't serve them as they think you should they get mad and become critical and usually leave in high dudgeon to find another church that will be a proper church and will look after them properly. I'm sorry if I'm being a bitter, cynical old man this morning, but that's what I am. You have to take me as I am. But you know, the king who entered his city, he found that self centered, profit me spirit in the temple, and he wasn't very happy. Uh, he's on his way to give himself deeply in sacrifice for these very people. He, he's giving himself so that others might benefit and profit with life eternal. And he finds these people living selfishly and uh, making a bob or two on the back of the, of the flock of God. So he behaved like a priest And he took them out of the temple and he threw over their tables. And he said, you should be making this house a place for God's glory, a place for for prayer. But you've robbed God of his glory and you're robbing people of their money. So there's nothing more important, actually, in the world than that you and I recognize that Jesus is the prophet, priest and king. And that we are so influenced by him, so motivated by him and his cross, that we, we are enabled to overcome our instinctive self-centeredness in order to serve him and to, to serve one another.